Hello, beautiful. And what I really want to know is, what is good in your life today? This is Kia with another episode of the Female Veterans Podcast. Today, I have with me someone really special. She served 10 years in the Army, and um, she has a very big story. And another thing that I love about her is she runs an organization that does good work. We'll get into all of that later. But first, I want to give a shout out to my sponsor of this episode, Grunt Style. Go to gruntstyle.com, check out their apparel. They have all sorts of patriotic apparel for men, women, and children. I love it. I'm actually wearing some today. You can't see it, but it says big gun energy. (laughs) And this is where I get my Navy uh, t-shirts from so I can represent my branch. They are officially permitted to make military branch clothing. So if you want to wrap your branch like I do, go check out grunstyle.com and you will get 10% off your first order if you use code Baker. That's my last name. So just use that and you'll get 10% off. So um, run and go do that. You will like their stuff. I really like it. So today I want to introduce you to Sarah Boyd and she has a fantastic story and I cannot wait for you to hear it. So without further ado, welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. As you said, my name is Sarah Boyd, and I'm the president and founder of Operation Truth Vaccination Exposure Exposure Research. We just formally changed our name from Operation Truth Go For Illness Suffering Unite because we feel it's more congruent with our current mission. Nice. Very nice. So uh, what I like about that is if you listen to this podcast long enough, (laughs) you'll know that I am a disabled veteran. And I happen to believe that the illnesses that I acquired in the military had something to do with vaccinations. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm doing the timeline and it seems logical to me when my illnesses occurred. And we all know, you know, that we don't necessarily know what we're getting injected with. You know what I mean? Like, so, I mean, the rumor is that they do test on the military and I'm not saying it's true and I'm not saying it's a lie. It could be just a conspiracy, but you know, if you don't ask questions, you don't find answers, right? So one of the things I have also talked about on my show was an interview that I did with an actress, Jennifer Marshall. And you can go back and find that on the previous seasons. And um, she talked about the anthrax vaccination. And it was actually why she had to get out of the military. And she was she's a Navy girl like me. And she was going to be a lifer. But she got so sick that she had to fight to get out, to, to not have to get any more vaccinations from for anthrax. And she had to get out of the military. So it happens. Now, I'm, I'm not vaccine hesitant at all, but it happens. So you have to be aware. So I really love the work that you're doing. And I think it's really important. And I'm so glad to have you on the show. And before we dive into all of that, I want to find out what made you join the military? Well, I joined the military because at the time, around 1997, when I was 17, they had a college fund for $40,000. I joined the army um, at that time for that $40,000 college fund. And then I realized that I really enjoyed being in the military. 
I um, met my first husband, who was also in the military at our first duty station. Then we started a family. So as my career grew, so did my family. But along with that, I began to have a lot of chronic illnesses and became very ill. So I was on active duty for 10 years and it was a, a very, uh, it was very struggling. I had several permanent profiles, but I achieved what I was able to achieve. And as we all do, we adapt and overcome. And um, today's another day, right? Right. So 10 years is a big story. So let's start at the beginning. What was boot camp like for you? Well, it was the first time I ever rode an airplane. At the age of 18, it was two months after I graduated from high school in 1998. I went to South Carolina at Fort Jackson. And speaking to vaccinations, I recall getting several vaccinations. They used the, the gun form of administration as they did for a lot of different vaccinations back then. I'm not sure if they still do. But as we went through our in-processing, we were standing in lines. And I, I do recall some people, you know, be, being hesitant on certain vaccinations. And at that time, I didn't really mind, take any mind to it. I just remember that they were getting yelled at from the drill sergeant before graduation. And they had all the females wear our pumps and skirts for our graduation and our dress greens. And I remember all our, my fellow service members looking at my legs and making comments about how I had no ankle definition. And they're like, what's wrong with your legs? They're so swollen. What's wrong? And at that point, I, I had no idea. And I was too afraid to go to you know the clinic and seek a therapy because I didn't want to be put out of the military. So as many of us do, we just push through it and we carry on. But um, that's what I recall. I, or I first started having my um, first symptoms of chronic illness. I later found out it was lymphedema. Interesting. That is so interesting. My best friend in the military, she's actually the very first episode of this podcast her story is all about her struggle with lymphedema in the military and how they medical boarded her out after promising that they'd help her. So, I mean, that is really near and dear to my heart. I lived that with her. So I totally understand the emotional toll that lymphedema has and the physical toll and the psychological toll that it has, especially on a woman. And yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. So I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. And that was boot camp. Yeah, that was after basic training. And then I went on to, of course, my AIT and an additional skill identifier that I did not sign up for in my contract, but the army felt I needed to become my truck driver. So I drove on and went on to um, become a truck driver. In addition to a fuel system supply specialist, which was my first MOS in the army. So you had two. I actually had three. Three. Yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing time and an opportunity that I never thought was ever achievable. But my first tour, my first husband and I, he did four years or five years, four and a half, and I did three and a half. And we both got out of the family care plan because we were struggling to you know, put forth a care plan that was the requirement. And then uh, 9-11 happened. 
But before 9-11, we were already planning on coming back in the military because it just civilian life was not working out for us. And so uh, 9-11 happened and we were already planning on coming back in. So we were like, all right, let's do this. And so I came back in as an administrative specialist because I never worked as a fuel system supply specialist because I was pregnant and I worked in the office. And so every supervisor has seen that as an opportunity. Like she knows what she's doing. Let's put her in in the office instead. So I went back in the military um, right after 9-11 as an administrative specialist. I'd only been out for about six months. And I got some really amazing opportunities working on the general staff at Fort Lewis in Washington. I worked for a three-star general, a two-star general, a one-star general, and the command star major on their secretarial staff. I went to Thailand as an opportunity to work on the first-star general staff. And then I became pregnant with my second daughter. So after I decided that administrative specialist was not going to get me where I needed to go in my career, I went back to school, I raised my GT score, and I was able to become whatever was available. And so I decided to become a counterintelligence special agent. Whoa, 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 wait. I have to stop you. (laughs) I have to stop you because that's super juicy. And I have already so many questions about that. But I want to go back a little bit. I want to go back to, okay, (laughs) you said that your first husband and yourself got out of the military, right? And you spent some time as a civilian and then you guys decided to go back in and then 9-11 happened, which I can't tell you how many people I talked to that say 9-11 inspired them to go into the military. I also served prior to 9-11 and I, unlike everyone else, was like, thank God I'm not in the military when this happened. (laughs) This is so bad because I knew I like the writing was on the wall. I'm like, I already knew. I had no idea would go on for 20 years, though. I did not think that. Let me tell you. But I knew we were going to war. So you said you guys got out of the military. You got off your family care plan. What was that decision? How did you guys come to the decision to even leave the military in the first place? Well, my husband at the time, he didn't have the family care plan. So he decided to get out first. And then he went to Washington State to seek work. Well, I was still stationed at Georgia with our first daughter. And then because I was alone in Georgia, I had no one there locally to assist with my family care plan. I wasn't able to stay in the military at that time. And uh, they decided to place me out of the family care chapter plan or family care plan chapter, whatever it is as Mm -hmm. well, because I, I was a what do they call it? I can't think of the term geographical something. A geographical bachelor? Yeah, something to that effect. So basically a single mom because of that. And so went to Washington State to become, you know, civilians and start a civilian life. At that point, I was 21 and my husband was 22. So we were still quite young starting mm-hmm. to start our lives. And neither of us really had the training or the education that we needed to get to that same financial stability that we had in the military. Right. So we decided to come back in. And then 9-11 happened, like I stated. And we had already were on orders to enlist that next month in October. Wow. 
yeah, we were ready. And then as I stated, I became a counterintelligence special agent and I, I was ready to catch some terrorists. That was- <laughs> what made you decide on that field? Because you said you went to school and that gave you the opportunity to choose pretty much anything you wanted. And you chose that. What what made you choose it? Well, while in the military, I'm sure you probably have the same opportunities in the Navy. In the Army, they have a, a program that you can go through that um, they'll retrain you so that you can score higher on the GT score, which is you know equivalent of the ASVAB. Mm-hmm. And so once I did that, I was able to choose any position that the Army had available. So at first I was going to go CID, which is Criminal Investigative Department. And I saw the way that the individuals that worked in that department and division and the, the backstabbing and just wasn't for mm. me. It wasn't something that I wanted to continue in my career. And I felt going warrant officer and working in military intelligence would have been a lot more, um, you know, with some, what I wanted to do with my career. So I decided to go counterintelligence. They wanted, the army wanted me to go linguists because of course we always knew linguists. And I decided that wasn't for me, which looking back on it would have been amazing to learn a second language. Like, wow. But yeah, I chose to go special agent instead. <laughs> okay. So do tell, what was the training like for that? Well, uh, obviously for OSEC, uh, Fort Huachuca geographically is right on the border of Mexico. So there was a few times where um, uh, refugees would go across the border to try to immigrate into America. And they didn't realize that they were actually coming onto an army base, not only an army base, but a military intelligence army base. So it wasn't the best option for them. But it was, what, it was down there on the border of Mexico in Arizona, dry, cold climate. Actually, I didn't think it was going to be cold because I thought I was going to go to the desert. And I was thinking, all right, desert, it's going to be warm. But I went through my training from, I think it was October through March. So throughout the entire winter and we actually got snow and they closed down the post for a day for just a snow, a flurry of snow. So that was pretty, that was pretty interesting. I bet. But the training was the most mentally challenging training I've ever done in my life. Wow. How so? At the pilot program, it was one of the very first programs of its kind. And they were trying to cram what was well over. 20 weeks of training into under 20 weeks, because if it was over 20 weeks, they had to pay us whatever it is. I can't recall what it's called, but you know, when you PCS somewhere or you're going to training, they pay you a, an allotment and they didn't want to have to pay for us uh, that much money. So they crammed it into so many weeks and it was very intense. Wow. Well, I mean, that's one of the things the military is is known for, right? It's a lot of information that you have to learn and integrate in a very short period of time. I think that's probably my favorite skill that I acquired from serving was to be able to learn at a very rapid place. I think that's probably the skill that served me the best <laughs> since I left the military. How stressful was that for you? Um, the training or leaving the military? Um, the training. Oh, the training was exceptionally stressful. And as any good soldier does, I dealt with it with alcohol and cigarettes. 
and not very much sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you already answered my next question, which was going to be, how did you deal with it? <laughs> yeah, I think any good sailor would agree with that too. And probably airmen and Marine and probably now Space Force. But <laughs> we, we, I think we can all identify with that statement. So after your training, oh, what happened next? Well, they decided to send me to Korea. So as a part of going overseas, they gave me a lot of vaccinations for military readiness. Um, One of which was, according to my records, I had two anthrax vaccinations and a smallpox vaccination within a 48-hour period um, gearing up to go to Korea. And within the first two months of of landing in Korea, getting established, becoming uh, the second infantry division's um, counterintelligence special agent there at their main headquarters at Camp Red Cloud, I became very ill and I was on quarters a lot. I couldn't do my job. So they ended up putting me in an administration um, where I did most of my time in Korea and helped establish whatever they needed administratively. And I worked in between being ill, going to the clinic on base and off base. That was quite the experience, was going off base to a Korean um, hospital to get a CT scan. Um, I had no American interpreter. I had a Korean interpreter. So I just had to trust that she was telling me what they were talking about. They're mm. laughing. They're saying things. They're, you know, say, doing all things I have no idea what they're talking about and I'm going through the CT scan process which was nothing like here in America but as we do we adapt we overcome I went got through it but I ended up having to um, go through the medical board process and after I think it was in Korea for eight months they sent me back to uh, the states I was at Fort Lewis um at the Warrior Transition Battalion. They had just started that program in 2008. Wow. So you got really sick over there. I, I, I identify with that because in my time in the military, I think starting in 96, I started spending a lot of time sick in quarters, progressively more. And then I would get um, mono and I live with Epstein-Barr virus. Which normally, when you get mononucleosis, you get it one time in your life and you never get it again. But for me, it reoccurs. So it kept coming back. And I spent a lot of time sick in quarters. I'm actually really surprised that I didn't get med boarded out, to be honest with you. I tell you all the time, I say it all the time. I was not so sure how I was going to make it my five years that on active before my reserve time, my inactive reserve time. And I often thought I wasn't going to make it, but I did somehow. I don't know, but um, I definitely can identify with being unwell and having difficulties doing your job. And my friend Mel that I was talking about from episode one of the Female Veterans Podcast she was the same way and they moved her out of her department of dental to work in an admin as well because of all of her medical appointments and things of that nature. So I totally feel you, girl. 
I feel your pain and everything that you had to go through. Um, were there challenges? Because I know that she faced, and I also faced a lot of challenges from leadership because of our health. Did you have to go through experiences like that as well? Absolutely, unfortunately. Not only because we are females in a male-dominant career, that we have to prove ourselves. On top of that, if we're sick, they a lot of times look at us like we are faking or trying to get out of our jobs. Um, we're using sick call to get out of PT, you know, all of these speculative speculations without really knowing us. And a good supervisor will know their, their soldiers or sailors and be understanding of what they're going through. And I've had some really good leadership, especially when I was going through the med board process. Um, because when you're going through that, they already understand that you're sick and that you're trying to either A, get well so that you can be retained or B, um, you know, be placed outside of the military. But throughout my military career, I was very sick. I had, like I stated earlier, two different permanent profiles. My first um, real chronic illness I was diagnosed with um, after three years of being in the service was Raynaud's phenomenon something that not everyone is understanding of what it is. And so um, as a result, I wasn't able to regulate my temperature. So I could wear any type of cold weather gear I wanted at any moment because that was my permanent profile to do so to keep myself safe. And Mm -hmm. then I had another permanent profile to walk instead of run on the, the, the PT test. In the army, I'm not sure what it is in the navy for our physical training tests. We had to run for two miles, mm-hmm. uh, we had to do so many sit ups in two minutes, and then so many push ups in two mm-hmm. minutes. And so, I had a permanent profile to walk instead of run. And so, we, we walked for two and a half miles, which that is not an easy walk. <laughs> you have to do it in so much, you know, so many minutes, and it was a very brisk walk. But just trying to advance to the next leadership position, in order to go through PLDC, I couldn't be on permanent profile. So I had to drop my permanent profile for running and um, drop my permanent profile for Raynaud so I could go through PLDC to become the next leadership uh, rank, which was E5, mm-hmm. which I'm sure is similar in, in the Navy as well. Right. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of challenges, to say the least, up to the point of actually going through that medical board process. Wow. It sounds like a lot. And how did you manage that like mentally? How did you manage it psychologically? With alcohol and cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I was married. Um, happily, he was my best friend. We did a lot together. And when I was stationed in Washington state, I was close to my family. And even though I was on active duty for both of my pregnancies and I had a miscarriage in between the two, Mm. I still had a really great support system. And even though my family didn't really understand what it was like to be in the military because none of them have served with the exception of a few. They couldn't really resonate with what it was like to have have gone through that or be going through that, especially when my um, husband at the time went to Iraq in 03 and mm-hmm. then he went to Afghanistan in 05. I was pregnant with my our second daughter um, when he went to Iraq in 03. 
And so my family was very supportive. My sister came in to assist and because I was, um, I had very difficult pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost lost my a third pregnancy with my second daughter and I was on active duty. You know, I had, had to take steroids because my body was rejecting her. And so oh, no. it was on top of being on active duty while my active duty husband was at war. I mean, there is something to be said for military spouses, right? Definitely. I think that, in my opinion, they are the backbone. The The husbands, wives, and children of active duty members are the backbone of this country's military because they make, they sacrifice just as much. But when you are an active duty spouse of active duty, you understand better what your partner is going through when they're deployed. However, it's still super hard to be that spouse. Um, And I don't think we talk about that enough. What you're saying about you are having difficult pregnancies, your husband's off at war, you know, and you fortunately had a support system. Not everybody does, we know. But fortunately, you had a support system to help you get through that. But what was that? Um, toll like to have him away at war, the additional stress of him being away at war while you are at home trying to deliver a healthy baby. What was that like for you? Well, it was easier being in the military myself and understanding that with OPSEC, you're not going to know where he's at. With communications, you're not going to be able to speak with them as, as often as you'd like. And, um, there is a chance that he might not come home. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously all of those stressors are already there. And then on top of being on active duty, it kept me, um, it kept me distracted because I was working full time. I was pregnant. And on top of that, I decided I, I didn't have enough to do. So I was going to school full time. The army had a program where you get a laptop, a printer, and Wi-Fi capability for two years at the start. You get four classes, and then they expanded it. So I was going to school as a college student full-time online, on top of being pregnant, while my husband's at war, on top of being on active duty, and selling Mary Kay. (laughs) my God. How? I got through it on top of drinking and smoking cigarettes. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure you weren't drinking and smoking while you were pregnant, but if you were, no judgment. Okay. <laughs> so you kept yourself busy, obviously, very, very busy. And that's how you pulled through. And uh, your baby was born healthy. Uh, yeah, she was a healthy eight pounds, six ounces. How wonderful. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to mention being pregnant in the military and I'm not sure what it's like in the civilian sector. I'm pretty sure from what I've heard, they do not do this. But as soon as I had my daughter, they put me on a scale to weigh me. This is not the first time I've heard this. Actually, that's horrifying. I was 200 pounds. 200 pounds horrifying. And in the military, of course, they see that as a very... And they shame you. (laughs) You just had a baby. 
and you're expected to go right back the way you were before baby, um, you know, within six weeks or whatever time frame it was. So that's a, another challenge mm-hmm. of being in the military. And then I've, at the very first start back in the late nineties, I've actually had leadership tell me, well, if we, if the army wanted you to have a family, we would have issued you one. Mm, a baby didn't come in your sea bag. <laughs> That's the Navy equivalent. <laughs> Mentality. Mm-hmm. First, family second. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, your needs are usually third. Mm-hmm. And so I had to change my mindset when I became a civilian and became too ill to work and adapt to this new um, ability of being a chronic illness patient Mm -hmm. and realizing that I was never going to be able to be that person again, have that energy to continue on that lifestyle that I had. And I looking back, through my 20s and being on active duty with all of the chronic illness I had at that point, I don't know how I did it, really. I totally feel it. I totally feel you. I totally feel you. You know what? I don't often get a chance to speak to people with such an similar experience to me as far as, you know, illness, because I'm, I'm a chronic illness sufferer. And the difficulties that I had transitioning out of the military while ha- living with invisible illnesses um, were psychologically very, very difficult. And it it is something that people rarely understand. A lot of veterans do because a lot of us have invisible illnesses in one way or another, whether it's PTSD or all fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, or like just, there's so many that are in existence and that we suffer with, but the real impact that it has on our lives, on our children, on our marriages, on our, on every aspect of life is grossly underestimated, I think. And having spent you know, I, I was diagnosed when I was 23 years old. So I completely understand where you're coming from. I'm almost like triggered <laughs> because um, it's listening to you talk about it. It reminds me of what I had to go through. I lost a marriage because he didn't believe I was sick. He thought I was lazy. You know, my transition into the civilian sector was incredibly difficult because I had more down days than other people you know, I really have unique needs. And so the way I've had to style my life caters to my unique needs. A lot of veterans work for themselves. I'm one of them because I cannot work for a company. And I spent so much time fighting the government to recognize my illnesses. um, So that maybe if I wanted to be covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act and actually seek employment, I could be. But prior to that, I was just trying to exist. And I spent a good 10 years in therapy because I was so demoralized and depressed and unhappy with how my life, what the options were for me, I guess. Like I didn't see in my early 30s 
after my first pregnancy, I got sicker. That's what happened. I had a very difficult first pregnancy. So I, I identify with that as well. And I almost lost him. And I spent a lot of time in therapy because I didn't understand how I was going to be able to be a mother and to, to do all these things. I was very worried about the relationship I had with his father going the way the first one went. And those are things people don't understand because if you don't live with an illness, especially when if you can see the illness, people are more forgiving, right? More understanding, more compassionate. But if you can't see the illness and the person looks completely fine to you, then, I mean, I don't know how they can really understand. So I completely identify with the things that you're saying. And, you know, it it took me a long time to sort of get a handle on figuring out how to live a full and purpose-filled and fulfilled life, even with these illnesses. And I try to help other people do it now. So I, I guess my question for you is, how do you manage? Well, first, my 30s went very well. And it's unfortunate because that was when it was the most critical time to be raising my children. When I got out of the military, it was in 2008. My oldest daughter was eight. and my my youngest daughter was five. Uh, my first husband and I spent a year together going to work. So I became a single mother. We, it was during that time frame where it was uh, during the housing crisis. We just purchased our first home. And so I lost my home. Mm-hmm. It's 11 years. And oh, no. so I sold everything. I sold everything. And for the first time, or, uh, and the largest garage that I've ever had as of now, I, I made $3,000, $3,000 off of this garage sale. So I was able to move us to Seattle to a place where my daughters were going to a, an incredible elementary school because the way that they do the school system in Seattle, it's based on income. And we were on the lower end of Queen Anne and at the top, of the hills where the school and uh, district was and where all the rich individuals lived. And so it was a very great school and it was a great opportunity. Disability, or very, very little disability from the VA. And I was going to school. So we were living off of loans that I was taking through the school, mm-hmm. trying to become a, a massage therapist. And so I just continued to adapt and overcome. I met a another individual who was a Navy veteran and at the time was a narcissist. And I I had no idea what a narcissist was. Mm -hmm. And so I was very miserable, you know, going through this transition period and uh, misery loves company. So we both got together and were miserable for five years. Very toxic. Um, I allowed my daughters to be around this toxicity. And I didn't realize the impact until later, until it was, you know, time for therapy. Yeah. And that is my most major regret in my entire life is that I didn't seek better care for my chronic illness, that I didn't seek better therapy 
Well, I did. I just didn't get it through the VA. Right. And I allowed this narcissistic toxicity to be around my daughters. So I ended up divorcing him, but I never healed. I never allowed my time to heal. And so I jumped from one narcissistic relationship to another. Oh, no. wanted to really hone in on this interview is that oftentimes, not just as chronic illness patients, but as chronic illness patients, as females, we are targeted by those individuals that see us as weak, that see us as in need of someone to take care of, and that will use us to their advantage. And as a result of me having that type of um, behavioral pattern of wanting to bring joy and happiness to others was, was what brought me joy and happiness. And so that's just a textbook narcissistic manipulation right there. And that was, you know, one after the other until this last year, I decided to stop dating to use this time to for professional and personal development. And I really learned a lot about myself. And I, if I could, if anyone learns anything from this interview today is that if you're a chronic illness patient, it's to not allow anyone to take advantage of you, um, that you are so much stronger than you would ever believe. And to continue to um, see that strength and just, you know, not allow anybody to take advantage of you. That's number one. I'm so glad you said that because we are more vulnerable. I think when we are unhealed and we're not feeling secure in ourselves because we are feeling like less than because we are not well and because we're judged because we might look like we are well, but we are not well. And people tend to lean more towards believing what they can see. So if I was a veteran who was maybe, you know, had lost a limb and the war that has its own whole other issues that you have to deal with within yourself and with other people. But generally the public will have more compassion for that. If you can't see something wrong with someone, then you, people tend to, to have less compassion and empathy for it. And predators like narcissists, they do look for people who are not fully healed mentally and emotionally to prey on. And that can be something that makes you um, pray for someone like that. So I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. I think it's really important. I had an episode with my friend Jessica who was escaping an abusive relationship and her story was about narcissistic abuse too. You can go back. I think it's season five or season four in season four. And, um, she, she wanted to come on to talk about leaving abusive relationships. And so this platform is for that. And I'm so glad that you brought it up because it is important for people to recognize that if you are feeling vulnerable and, and you're walking around, you know, with this wound about, feeling less than because you have these illnesses. And I know I did it for many years. 
you are enough and you deserve better. And, you know, watch out because people will prey on you, prey on your vulnerability. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for bringing up that vulnerability piece. I just wanted to state too that so much in society, we base confidence on how we look. Now, does she have her makeup on right? Mm -hmm. Um, Does she have her hair on point? How's her eyebrows? You know, like what's her, 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 her attire look like? And what we don't realize as chronic illness patients is that our confidence is built through our vulnerabilities. I am here speaking, telling you about my story, being vulnerable. And that shows an, a magnitude of confidence. Um, as a result of my allergies, um, and this is a very difficult part as being a woman, um, because of societal norms that you have to present this more feminine look about you, I can't wear makeup. There's about three products and three different lines that don't make me want to itch my face off. And that's all I can wear. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you get into skincare and hair care, I mean, that eliminates a lot of, of products because of the allergen component. And then I wear these glasses which I've had to wear since 2012 as a result of three different um, conditions that cause eye irritations. And so there's different things about each chronic illness patient that we have to adapt and overcome. Mm -hmm. And as women, it's sometimes even more challenging of what societal norms, you know, say that we have to, you know, portray this certain image. So thank you for speaking to vulnerabilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a safe space for it. That is for sure. Um, So as we're talking about your transition out of the military and into civilian life and all of that, what was the most difficult thing for you during that transition? Well, I'm probably going to say what every other veteran has said, and that is dealing with the VA. (laughs) Oh, yeah. By far, the most challenging can't work or you don't have Medicare or you don't have other type of insurances and you're forced to go through the VA medical system. I am sorry. I feel for you. Become your friend with your patient advocate of an appropriate advocate that is doing their job correctly. Don't allow it to stress you out. Seek out other veteran organizations and groups because we are our best friends. Our veteran family truly are the only ones that know what we go through and can help us through it. A thousand percent. (laughs) Exactly why I'm here doing this today, because um, it's what I needed to connect with my veteran sisters. It gives me a great excuse to talk to my veteran sisters every week, Um, even if you don't hear the episodes every week. I typically talk to one, at least one female veteran every single week if I'm not taking a short break. And it's like life for me. And going to uh, veterans events is like life for me. And along my journey, if you listen to this podcast, I say it all the time. That's how I started my healing process. Years ago, I was on hard times. I was nearly homeless. Uh, My husband left me, took all the money, switched his account. And sort of left me penniless, we'll say. 
and I had been laid off from my job and, and the building that we were living in one day, the owner, he had been this little old man, we'd lived there for a few years. And then one day these guys knocked on the door and said, Hey, we're the new owner. You have until this date to vacate. And we were just like, Oh, oh my God. Right. So I was just about to be homeless. I had been laid off from my job. My husband took all the money and I just was like, what am I going to do? So fortunately, one of my veteran sisters, I mentioned Mel's, shout out to her, came through to help me out. Um, And a a civilian friend whom I met while I was in the Navy, Holly, shout out to her too. Um, I know she listens when she can. And they came through and they helped me and I got a job. Very quickly, I found a place. Another woman ended up helping me. Her name was Eileen Francis. And she was a an older, wealthy woman who owned properties around Chicago, where I was living at the time. And she was divorced, I think, six or seven times or something like that. And when I when I went there, I, the, she had this duplex in the city. It was so beautiful. And um, the first floor and the basement were for rent. And we went and looked at it and we were like, oh, this is gorgeous. And we were like, how much is the rent? And when she told us, we were like, ah, we can't afford that. And I said, I don't want to take a place that I can't afford the rent by myself. Like together we can afford this, no problem. But if anything happens where one of us loses our job or whatever, we're going to be screwed. We're not going to be able to pay this lady. Do you know, she was like, no, no, no. I understand the situation. I know what it's like to get divorced and you need, my, my husbands were abusive. Let me, I'm going to let you stay. She literally let us stay there for six months rent-free. So that really helped me. So the, this sisterhood amongst women, right? That we're, we're like, okay, I see you're down on your luck. I have it. I can help you out. And then my two girlfriends, one being a female veteran, and I thought, uh, and the company I worked for really liked to hire veterans. <laughs> so, um, and that was new for me because when I was in Arizona, it seemed like being a veteran was a bad thing. This is before 9-11. So I took it off my resume. And, um, and it, and it ended up that I started to come across veterans after that. And I would help them out with their VA. How, this is how you get involved. This is how you navigate the system. Cause if you don't know how to navigate the system, you can get lost in the VA system, whether it's filing for your benefits, your claim, your disability claim, or your healthcare benefits or your GI bill or whatever it is to do with the government and veterans. If you don't know how to work the system, you're going to get shuffled around a bit and lost or, or give up. So I helped veterans along the way. And that was the pathway that led me here. And what I always tell, told them even back then in the early two thousands was, you know, what helps me more than anything, helping other veterans. So I'm, I'm really not surprised that, that this is what you do with your organization as well, helping other veterans, because it's as much as it is, beneficial for our community because we're all we got you know that's why i'm always like buy veteran businesses go to grunt style get help them out they hire veterans i'm always about that right that was my whole end of 2021 rant was about (laughs) don't don't just tell me thank you for my service go shop at a veteran-owned business you know that was the whole thing if you haven't heard it essentially a little bit more details but that's it and and i and i love that you said that I love it because it's it's so true. And it's the same advice that I have given so many times over. So tell me more about it, about your transition. Oh, sure. I just want to say thank you so much for all that you do for our veteran community. 
every giving back. And often, like you said, as a result of us becoming chronically ill and not being able to work and you know be back in as a productive member of society, we have a lot of downtime. Mm-hmm. And what better way to you know fulfill that time but to give back to our veteran community? And so that's what I decided to do in 2017. Operation True started as a simple Facebook page and a Facebook group. I decided at first I would just collect stories and that way we would bring awareness through our stories. Then I decided and later found out that that would bring us nothing, you know, that would achieve um, nothing. So we decided to branch out and actually become a 501c3. In 2019, I applied. I paid out of pocket for the fee and we became an official 501c3 in the end of 2019. Um, at that point, we had less than a thousand followers on our Facebook page. And then, uh, you know, of course, we've grown to now almost 2,000 followers on our Facebook page. And then all together throughout our Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, and other Facebook pages, we have about 5,000 followers at this time. But we have a, an incredible website at operationtruth.net that has an amazing amount of information that uh, one of our fellow, all of the, our team members are all veterans who are suffering from chronic multi-symptom illness from different reasons and different exposures. And so what we've found out since I started researching was that the VA's public health website has listed multiple different exposures, multiple different environmental exposures um, from war, environmental exposures from just um, being at your current duty station and vaccinations included in that exposures of um, possibly causing chronic multi-symptom illness. And so what the VA is doing is doing research on a lot of these exposures to now include the burn pits exposures. But the only reason why the VA is, is doing any of this is from the hard work and dedication from our fellow veterans that are working so diligently to get these policies changed through U.S. Congress and the VA and every other measure that they're trying to do. And so we're trying to achieve the same through Operation Truth. So this is brilliant. Um, I love that. I am a huge supporter of um, burnpits360.org. If you go through, uh, if you read what this episode is about and you keep scrolling down, you see a list of organizations that I support regularly. You will find them on there. These exposures are really, really serious. It's a real thing. You don't know what you came in contact with. I myself don't know what I came in contact with that caused me, having served during peacetime, that caused me this illnesses. Now, I did come in at the end of Desert Storm. I know that there were exposures that happened over there, but I did not deploy. So it's either something that I was exposed to or something I was injected with. That is what I've come to the conclusion of, of why I'm living with these illnesses for the rest of my life. And it's a difficult thing to be told at 23 years old that you have something that you're, you have multiple things that you're going to be living with for the rest of your life. And there's, it's not going away. You just have to deal with it. That takes a real psychological toll. As a chronic multi-symptom illness patient, at any point, we can have up to, the, and this is my current situation, 25 
debilitating diagnoses that cause over 60 different symptoms. Um, the VA has diagnosed me with all of those different 25 debilitating diagnoses, uh, one of which is vaccine immunoglobulin and anti-sera adverse reaction. It's a fancy medical term of saying vaccine injury. Um, on top of that, of course, the VA has on their public health website a listing of all the vaccinations that they feel could have caused chronic multi-symptom illness. If you go to the VA's public health website, it reads like you had to have gone to Iraq or Afghanistan or what they call the Southwest Asia Theater of, Theater of excuse me Southwest, Southwest Theater Area of Operations. I had to get that right. Um, and in that area, if you served in that area during a certain amount of time and have these certain illnesses that they list on the website as well, then you um, can seek care through the VA and you have to go through this process. But what a lot of individuals and people that work at the VA don't even see that their own website states, you had to have served at this location or have these medical conditions during this time frame. It doesn't say and, it just says or. So that right there would indicate that even if you didn't go to the, those areas of operation, you still are subject to the VA's um, policy for chronic multi-symptom illness or what they used to call Gulf War illness. And so that's where my case falls into play. I had an amazing primary care provider at the Washington VA system. Um, she put, in, put me in for the Gulf War registry exam. Now, I wasn't deployed. I didn't go to Iraq or Afghanistan, but I went to Korea and Thailand and I got all the, the vaccinations for military readiness. And as a result, I became very injured. So with that being said, I went through the Gulf War registry exam at the Seattle, Washington VA. They asked me several questions concerning my environmental hazards before the ser my service, during my service, and after my service. And then we had, you know, several different questions about my time in service and the vaccinations I received. During my time, I joined, it was the um, Anthrax Vaccine Immunization Program, or AVIP, that President Clinton's cabinet put forth policy that 100% of all service members would get the anthrax vaccine during peacetime because they felt that it was a threat to our nation, that we, the biodefense weapon of anthrax. So during that time, there was a lot of service members refusing the anthrax vaccine. And so as a result, they were getting court-martialed. And I think around 2001 was when the 106th Congress had, a, had an investigation to not only the DOD's practices, but also the, um, in the corporation that made the anthrax vaccine, which was an organization out of Michigan. So they determined that the way it was made and the way that it was being presented and administered was not appropriate. And so they found that a lot of the Gulf War illness patients had what um, was called squalene adjuvant in their system. But they discontinued any research to determine you know, any further if it was uh, squalene adjuvant or some other adjuvant 
or what other you know type of ingredient that could have caused these these type of medical conditions. And so that's where the gap um, is at the VA right now, and where Operation Truth is trying to fill that gap, where we can get that research. We've hired a corporation out of California that can start the research process to do just that, to find out genetically who and why some are more susceptible to vaccine injury. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. I know I remember all of that, what you're talking about, about Bill Clinton and the anthrax vaccinations. And I remember, and I I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, probably certainly in the Jennifer Marshall episode, them bringing us into Ross Auditorium at Naval uh, Naval Hospital Great Lakes, the base there. And I, they took us into the base movie theater and they showed us these propaganda films about the anthrax vaccine. There were two of them. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be a conscientious objector. I don't want to do that. How am I going to get out of getting this vaccine? Literally, those were my thoughts. And then as I was talking to Jennifer and I found out that she was getting sick, she got sick from the vaccine. I thought, oh my God, you know, my fears were founded. <laughs> I mean, like I was not off base for that. And then I also recalled, now don't quote me because I don't remember, it was like 2002, maybe I read this article and I don't know where I read it, must have been in some sort of magazine about, or or, or news, maybe um, online perhaps. But I remember reading an article saying that the company that supplied this vaccine had gone out of business. But the government was still using that vaccine. And I thought to myself, oh my God, that doesn't seem good. (laughs) That seems bad. (laughs) Of that article, but they could have either misrepresented the story or perhaps uh, misunderstood. But what had happened was, yes, tell me. As a result of the 106th congressional investigation, um, they had to change their name, the company, Ooh. and um, a few other things, and you know, change a lot of how they made vaccinations, how they stored vaccinations. They lost eventually lost the anthrax contract mm-hmm. because they are trying to make a new anthrax vaccine that doesn't take as many um, shots to administer Mm -hmm. because, you know, many vaccinations, you have to have a certain series. Mm -hmm. And so when you think of the military industrial complex and you have to be ready for war in order to be military ready, you can't wait six months Mm -hmm. for your soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines to be ready to be, um, uh, for anthrax, you know, to, to have that protection. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they are been formulating a new anthrax vaccine. But yeah, it's very similar to that same. Mm-hmm. So that's probably what happened. That's probably why they went out of business. They didn't go out of business. They just changed your name. So there were probably some sort of announcement like this company's no more, but it's only because it was like, oh, I totally get it. That makes sense. And it sounds logical. We solved the mystery. <laughs> so. So, oh my God. So tell me, tell me more. Cause this is so interesting because I remember saying I have golf war syndrome. Like I knew I, I was telling my doctors, I'm like, I have golf war syndrome. 
And they're like, you can't have golf war syndrome. <laughs> you And I'm like, yeah, but I do. Because if you look at everything on here, I have like so many of these symptoms. So it is impossible for me not to have it. And it's always a fight, right? It's always a fight, but you are your own best advocate. So you have to fight. And that's what they train us to do in the military, fight. And then sometimes we have to take that skill and use it on them, right? And so that's why I love what you're doing because you're providing information that people can go because everyone's talking about, I do my own research these days. So you are actually providing information, a place for people to go to do their own research and to find out information about what's affecting them and what potentially could have caused that and get a place for them to get some support, which I love that. I love that you hired a company to help you do research like scientific studies, because that is necessary. That's the only thing people understand, the powers that be, I mean. So that's incredible. So what is your vision for all of this? Well, first I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your support. And on our website, we take it a step further where we're advocating and we're allowing um, the patients to advocate for themselves. If you go to our website, there is a doctor's binder that we've provided several different research materials and things that you can print out, put in a binder and bring to your appointments so that you can have that intelligent conversation with your medical team. And you can show them that, yes, this is a possibility. Um, These are the findings. It's actual fact-based. You know, a lot of our research is from the National Institute of Health. And so they're reputable sources. And it's great information to be able to take that and use as a tool to have that intelligent conversation with your doctor. Beautiful. I absolutely love that. So important. So if you are interested in finding out more, um, I will have the links uh, for all of this uh, in my description of this episode. Like I said, you will read all about Sarah and then to see what the episode's about and then keep scrolling down and you'll see all of those those links and things like that. You just copy them and paste them into your browser and find that information or however you want to do it. Um, you'll There'll be the links to follow uh, Facebook and Instagram as well. So all the information will be there for you and go advocate for yourself because no one else is going to do it. You got to do it for you. Um, and with that, I'd like to find out from you what advice you have for your veteran sisters coming up behind you, Sarah. My advice is to get involved. Whatever you're passionate about, get involved because like you stated earlier, you it is so rewarding. And you will it will get you out of that mindset of depression, anxiety, whatever um, demons that you have going on, it will assist you as a great distraction and a rewarding distraction because you're giving back to your veteran community. And on top of that, uh, you're helping yourself. So um, what we've also done, Operation Truth, in order to help us all, we've put together a petition you can find at change.org. If you go to our website, of course, we have the link. And that's how we are helping and giving back in addition to all of the other things that our corporate, our nonprofit is doing, is that petition is so important to show our U.S. Congress members just how many supporters we have. And unfortunately, when it comes to vaccine injury, 
a lot of individuals aren't that supportive because they aren't knowledgeable of what we're trying to achieve. And it's about research to assist these injured patients um, where the medical community is failing them. So thank you so much for this opportunity and to give back to your communities is so important. I agree. And nothing makes me feel better than connecting with veterans, male or female, really, but especially my veteran sisters. So um, that's that's my always my advice too. And I know that you are everywhere on social media. You've got TikTok, you've got Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Instagram. You've got, of course, the petition on change.org uh, and you're on YouTube. So what what can we find on your YouTube channel? Well, I haven't been back in a couple of years, so I'm, I'm going to go back and start doing a lot more videos of showing what a, a vaccine injury patient looks like, having a platform to speak about chronic illness and um, what therapies work for us all. And in addition to that, you know, speaking to the medical community, I have a few doctors that are willing to come on and speak to um, what chronic illness is is and how we can get past that and then what the the major chronic illness is for vaccine injured patients and what the medical community really doesn't know enough about is called asia and it's a specific uh, medical condition for um adjuvant induced chronic illness and so it's um very important that we continue this conversation so and bring awareness to what a lot of individuals, even in the medical community, are aware of. So thank you again for this this platform and this opportunity to do so. Oh, it's been a pleasure, and I um, it's important to me, right? Uh, and I want to encourage you to get after that YouTube channel because right now, more than ever, people want the information that you have, and they need it. They really need it. So I think that if you really go all in with that, you'll be able to reach so many people and help so many people. So I'm going to encourage you to do it and I will support that channel for sure. I'm going to subscribe. And I think that we all should just go give her a subscribe on her YouTube channel to encourage her to, um, to make those videos that we all need to see. And um, of course, the link will be in the description box. <laughs> so um, where you read the uh, episode details and, um, and yeah, let's, let's support Operation Truth. I think it's, it's necessary. Um, and I think with that, we're going to wrap it up. Sarah, I want to tell you, it has been such a pleasure to have you here with me and get to know you and hear your story and how much similarities we have and how much you've had to overcome and to see you just out here fighting the good fight and doing things that are amazing to help our veteran community. It has been an honor and a privilege to connect with you today. Thank you so much. The honor is definitely mine. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And uh, well, everybody, I want to remind you to go check out GrantStyle.com. They sponsored this episode. I'm so excited about it. And they have cute stuff. Otherwise, I would not have <laughs> agreed to work with them. Um, honestly, that's not only it. They do employ a lot of veterans. They're veteran-owned and operated for the most part. I think there are some civilians that are up in there, but just a few. And... Um, and they have a really incredible foundation. So go and check out the Grunt Style Foundation. They do a lot of work. They're connected with Burn 
Pit 360 now. They work with homelessness and mental health issues that affect our community. So not only do they make cute stuff, (laughs) they also have a mission and a purpose that I can get behind, which I can't get behind a lot of things these days. (laughs) So um, go check them out and get a t-shirt. And um, by doing that, you'll be supporting this channel as well, actually. So, um, or supporting this podcast. So thanks for that already. And um, well, thank you for coming on this journey with me. I love you guys, and I'll talk to you next time.